Well, when God first created the human race, part of his good design was that he made us to be loved. He made us with the capacity to receive love from others. And we were made to flourish within a context of being loved. It's actually part of how we reflect God. We're created in his image. God himself is love, and he exists eternally as a community of love. Think about it. The three persons of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they have from eternity past perfectly loved one another. And each divine person has delighted to know the love of the other two. God forever has been lover and beloved. So when he was on earth, Jesus, who is God the Son, spoke many times about how he delighted in the Father's love for him. And then when the Father spoke from heaven to bear witness of his Son, this is what he said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus delighted in being known and being loved by his Father. Well, we're created in the image of God, so naturally, we also have a deep hunger to receive love. Now, our sin has warped this, of course. The fall warped it, just like it warped everything else. So, we don't just want to be loved. We want to be adored. We want to be worshipped. We want others to love us supremely. And that, of course, is twisted. But it doesn't change the fact that the basic instinct was still given to us from our good God. Each one of us wants to be loved. To be known and to be accepted. But there's a problem. Because the more someone gets to know us, the more there is not to love. Right? If we open ourselves up to one another and we reveal what's really going on inside, we become vulnerable. Because what's really going on inside can be really, really ugly. There's a lot of yuck underneath the surface. And when we do reveal ourselves, when we open ourselves up, and if the other person responds with distaste or with rejection, that's super painful. To be known, to be really known with all our flaws and all our weaknesses and all our annoying patterns and habits and all our sins and to still be loved and accepted. That's what we long for. And when we're covered by that kind of love, it's life-giving. It's transformative. Well, in our passage of Scripture today, we're going to see such an example of life-giving love. We get to be silent spectators as one person entrusts their future and their reputation entirely into the hands of another, becoming vulnerable. What will happen, though? They're, They're not going to be disappointed. They won't be disappointed. So I want you please to turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. If you're using one of these blue Bibles in the seats in front of you, you'll find it on page 223. Alright, a brief recap while you're turning of where we are in our story. 
Ruth the Moabitess has returned with her mother-in-law Naomi to the land of Israel. They're now back in Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem, but they're two impoverished widows. Naomi has returned back to Israel and she's been emptied. And Ruth, she's a foreigner, but she has left her people and her gods and she's embraced the God of Israel, the Lord. She's sought refuge under his wings and since they've returned, they have had some help. Naomi has this relative of her husband's named Boaz, a worthy man. And Ruth has gone out. She's exercised the right of the needy in Israel to go to any field and glean for grain after the reapers at the harvest. And she just so happened to come to the field of Boaz when reality, God was directing her there. And Boaz has shown her favor. He has welcomed her. He has told her to stay in his fields among his harvesters and there she'll be able to glean in safety. And so where we pick up our story, Ruth has worked in Boaz's fields all throughout the barley, all throughout the wheat harvests and all that has provided for her and for her mother-in-law. So now let's start reading, please, in chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. And put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you have said, I will do. Now back in chapter 1, while they were still in Moab and hadn't left yet, Naomi had prayed to the Lord that he would grant that Ruth would find rest in the house of a husband after the death of her son, Ruth's first husband. She prayed that the Lord would grant Ruth rest. And now she wants to help be part of bringing that about. She wants to take action to secure rest for Ruth. And I want you to notice how this desire of Naomi's has has overtones, it has harmonics of salvation. See, she longs to see Ruth set up in a family, but rest is really is a really big theological idea in the Bible. When God brings a person into rest, it means he's brought them into his place of blessing where they can flourish. The promised land itself was supposed to be a place of rest for Israel, and they were only able to enter it by faith. The first generation in the wilderness, you might remember, God swore in his wrath they would not enter his rest, would not enter into the promised land because of their unbelief. And ultimately, they wouldn't enter heaven because of their unbelief. But faith allows one to enter into rest, into God's rest. So rest means trusting God, knowing his blessing, and experiencing lasting good. It's ultimately a picture of heaven. But in Ruth's case, rest does have a pretty tangible expression. She needs a husband. So Naomi's going to play matchmaker. And she has seen how Boaz has shown extraordinary favor to Ruth. He's a man of means. He's a, a worthy man, a man of good character, 
a man of loving kindness, and he's a close relative, someone who's actually close enough to be one of their kinsmen redeemers. So in Naomi's mind, Boaz is a great prospect. So she's going to take action now to see that her own prayer, for God to provide rest for Ruth, that her own prayer be come to fruition. She's trusting in the Lord to provide, but she also recognizes that God often uses means. And so she is going to work her angles. By the way, I think that's just an excellent principle in general. If we pray to some good end, we should be willing to be the means by which God answers our own prayers. Right? So say you're praying for a brother and sister in the church. They're really struggling with some tough, tough situation. Oh, Lord, please help them in their tough situation. They're feeling so overwhelmed with X. Well, that's great. So glad you're praying that. Excellent and necessary that you pray that. What could you do to be helpful to them in X? Or we might be praying for an unbeliever. Lord, bring them into contact with someone who might share the gospel with them. That is a great prayer. We just prayed it for the kids of the youth retreat. Are you willing that he would use you? Perhaps you are in a position to be the one to share the gospel with them. Maybe it's something really tangible. Lord, help so-and-so because they're in financial need. That's, that's great, well and good. Are you able to provide some assistance, some financial assistance, and be the conduit of God's grace for them? So we'll come back more to this idea later, but let us pray fervently for God to pour out his blessings. And then let us be ready and willing for God to use us as the bucket by which he pours them out. That's what Naomi's doing here. She wants to be part of the solution. All right, what's her plan? Well, she knows that tonight, Boaz is going to be at the town threshing floor. What's a threshing floor? Well, you've got all this grain that you've harvested. You need, to get it, you need to get it winnowed. So there's usually this place at every village where there's a large area of exposed rock or hardened earth. And that place also needs to have a big prevailing breeze that regularly goes across it. That's important too. So then after harvest, everyone goes there with their sheaves, in this case of barley, and they beat them out. Sometimes they beat them with um, threshing sledges or they, they might tread on them with, with oxen. And that all shakes the barley kernels loose from the stalks. And once that's done, you all get together and you throw up the, the grain into the air and toss it up and then... What happens? That stiff breeze comes along, blows away the stalks, blows away the chaff. They're real light, but the heavier kernels of grain fall right back to the ground. And that's what Boaz is up to tonight. He's had his harvest brought in, but now he's going to be winnowing the grain. And there's going to be a feast. It's going to be a party because winnowing is this time of celebration. They actually get to realize the fruit of the harvest. So when the feast is over, everyone's going to go to rest. But Naomi somehow knows that Boaz is going to be sleeping at the threshing floor tonight with the winnowed grain, probably to guard it. So Naomi has a scheme. Her scheme, a shrewd one, is that Ruth should bathe and anoint herself and adorn herself and then go off to the threshing floor herself. And when Boaz retires for the night, she should watch. She shouldn't... shouldn't Go up to him yet. She should just watch and take note of where he lies down. 
And only then, when she can be unobserved and alone, she should approach him and, and draw back the edge of the mantle that's covering his feet and then lie down right there at his feet. Okay, you might wonder, that's kind of a weird... <laughs> what? <laughs> Fifty ways to catch a husband. Bit of a weird plan. What's it all supposed to mean? I th- it's rather clever, actually. This plan is very bold, somewhat risky, and just a little suggestive, but without being unchaste or immoral. Why is it bold? Well, it's, it's bold because it's taking the initiative with Boaz in an extremely forward manner. It's risky because obviously Ruth will be putting herself in an extremely vulnerable position. Bo- Naomi is placing a lot of trust in Boaz's character that he's not going to take advantage of the situation. It's a little suggestive because uncovering his feet and lying down at them is, is of course, quite an intimate gesture. It hints at the fulfillment of what she's asking for. But Ruth's objective is not to seduce Boaz, but rather she's going to be making an appeal to him, asking him to take her as his wife. And then once she's put the matter into his hands, she's supposed to wait and he'll give her an answer. Ruth agrees to this plan. We're going to pick up the reading in verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. and Behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. All right, so we get to the part of the plan where it's coming to execution. She's down at the threshing floor now. And the joyous work of winnowing is followed by feasting, and by the time it's all over, Boaz is a satisfied and happy man. So everyone says goodnight. They all head out on their separate ways home. But Boaz goes to his chosen resting place right by the big heap of barley. He lies down, covers himself up, probably with a great big cloak, and he falls asleep. And then Ruth, it says in secret, stealthily, she sets the plan in motion. She creeps up and she pulls back his cloak, exposing his feet. And then she lies down and waits. I don't know that she probably slept. That seems unlikely in my mind. Well, sometime deep in the night, Boaz, who is asleep, he is disturbed. Maybe his feet got cold. uh, And he wakes up and he looks and, crikey, there's a woman down there at his feet. Not what he was expecting. So he very naturally asks her, who are you? And once she's identified herself, Ruth makes her very bold request. Spread your wings over me. Now, there's several things going on with that request. The word wings can mean, as the ESV marginal note says, the word wings can also mean the corner of a garment. And in that culture, for a man to spread 
his garment over a woman meant that he claimed her as his wife. And so Ruth is just very frankly asking, take me to be your wife. But then there's more than that. Remember from last week's sermon, what happened the very first day that they met? Boaz blessed Ruth and said, May a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So we already Ruth has come to shelter under the Lord's wings, and now she's saying to Boaz, I want to be able to take refuge under your wings also. You asked the Lord to provide me with a full reward. Now I'm asking you to be the one through whom he provides it. So give me rest. Give me provision. Give me safety and security. Give me standing in Israel. Give me your name. Make me your wife. Give me your children. After all, she says, you are a redeemer. That's all going on in that simple Short request, spread your wings over me. All right, she's put it all out there. What's he going to do? Well, verse, verse 10. Let's look at verse 10. And he said, he's much more articulate than I am when I'm woken up in the middle of the night. But I suppose this is quite a shock to his system. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, after the young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear, I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. All right, so what does Boaz mean when he says this last kindness of Ruth's has been greater than her first? I don't think it's kindness toward him. I think it's kindness to Naomi. And this last request of him is the greatest installment of her kindness to Naomi. See, Boaz pays her a compliment. By this time, at the pick of any of the men. Right? She could have sought a husband among any of the young men of Bethlehem. And he's probably a little bit on the older side himself. But instead of going after the young men, she could have gotten herself a rich, rich young husband, a handsome, poor young husband, any kind of young husband she wanted. But instead, she's come to him. And because he is a redeemer... She has made her appeal to the the man who can not only provide her with a future as an individual, but who can also raise up the failing house of Elimelech. Boaz, the redeemer, has the ability to redeem Naomi's property and to raise up a child in the name of Naomi's son, Malon, who left Ruth a widow when he died. So, Ruth's first kindness to Naomi, that's pretty clear. That's her coming with her to Bethlehem. And now that's been surpassed by this last kindness. She's seeking rest with a redeemer who will provide for Naomi also. Provide even an heir for Naomi. So Boaz isn't at all put off by Ruth's forwardness. He assures her he is going to see her taken care of. And now look how Ruth's status has already changed. Her reputation among all the townspeople now 
is that she is a, a worthy woman. Ha! You should remember something when you hear that. Turn back to Ruth chapter 1. Or, sorry, Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So, what have we got? We've got a worthy man, and she has shown herself a worthy woman. They are now well-matched. Each of them has a known and a proven character. She's just not some Moabitess anymore. She's a worthy woman in Israel. All right, but just as we think everything's all about to be wrapped up, we start making a mental list of Bethlehem's best wedding photographers. There is a plot twist. Boaz does not yet spread his wings over Ruth because it turns out that there's another redeemer and that guy's kinship is closer than his. He is nearer to Naomi and to Ruth than Boaz is, so he has the first rights of redemption. Apparently, there was an order to who was responsible and who got to have the redemption rights. And Boaz is a, is a, a noble, worthy man. He's going to set aside his own desires and his own preferences, because you can be sure that by right now, he really, really would like to be the guy. He really wants to be this, this woman has captured his heart but he's going to set aside his own desires and preferences and do the thing properly. So he tells Ruth to remain there for the night where she has his protection. Right? He doesn't want to cast her out into the dark. And she has his assurance that she will be provided for. Now as for the other guy, Boaz is going to approach him himself in the morning. He's not sending Ruth to go seek after him. He's going to do it himself. And if that guy wants to exercise his rights and fulfill the responsibilities to the family, then that's fine. Ruth and Naomi will be provided for. Ruth is going to be a wife again soon enough. We just don't yet know whose wife. And if the other guy decides that he wants to decline, well then Boaz is ready and he's eager. He swears an oath by the life of Yahweh himself that he will redeem her. He's eager to do so. He's eager to redeem her. Well, what does this mean? It means that Ruth can rest securely because she knows her widowhood is coming to an end, her poverty is coming to an end, one way or another. Now, it's okay for you to be rooting for Boaz. You're allowed to have a preference, right? Team Boaz, team other guy, right? (laughs) Look, the fact that Ruth's future is going to be secured either way. Boaz will do all that she asks, and he's going to make sure that she has rest. So what has happened? This dear and needy woman has come to this worthy man, and she has bared her soul to him. She's put herself in a very vulnerable position. He could have taken advantage of her. He could have rejected her. But he does neither. Instead, he loves her. He admires her. He encourages her. And he vows that he will see her secure. And that's life-giving love right there. Let's finish up with verse 14. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said... Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. 
probably saying that to himself. And he said, bring the garment that you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out to her six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. All right, they rise before dawn. It's best that Ruth leaves unnoticed. Right? Nothing untoward has taken place. They know their characters are intact. But obviously it would be better that no one else knows that she's been there overnight. But he wants her to go with a tangible expression of his intentions. He gives her a down payment of his blessing. So he measures out in her cloak six measures of barley and helps her bundle it to carry it up. Great big sack of barley. That's a lot of barley. And back in the city, she returns to Naomi, who asks, How'd it go? I can imagine that Naomi might have had a little difficulty sleeping last night. And Ruth tells her the whole story. It's great, including everything Boaz has promised to do. And then she explains this great big load of barley. It came with a message. A message, I think, for Naomi. You must not go back empty to your mother-in-law. Now that is Kindness. That's a real kindness from the Lord and from Boaz. Because remember, you said, she said in her grief when she came back to Bethlehem, what did she say? I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. She has been emptied. But now the Lord is going to reverse that. Now Ruth has come back to her with a message that she's never going to be empty Ever again, Boaz is going to secure their future. His eager hope is that he will be permitted to redeem them himself. But for now, until we know the final outcome, this gift is a down payment of his blessing. It's a bountiful gift. It it shows that he's going to ensure their prosperity. And, I think, not insignificant, it's a gift of seed. It's a gift of seed. I think that there's an illusion there. One commentator says that this is seed to fill the stomach, which is a promise of seed to fill the womb. Right? He's promising that he's going to raise up heirs, going to raise up children for Ruth. So we see that Boaz the Redeemer is now working hard to make sure that both Naomi's prayer and his own are answered. Right? That Ruth would find rest in the home of her husband... He's wanting to fulfill that prayer. He's wanting to fulfill his own prayer in chapter 2 that the Lord would give her that full reward since she has come under the shadow of his wings. And then next week we'll figure out how the details are going to sugar out. But now how should we hear God's voice speaking to us through this story, through this word? We've got to look beyond Ruth, beyond Boaz, as charming as the story is, and it really is a wonderful story, we have to recognize the deeper and more wonderful love story that's really in play. Because what did I say at the beginning? God made you, God made me to be loved and treasured 
and cared for. And that's good. The problem is that we are not lovely. We are not lovely. Our sin has corrupted us and twisted us and made us ugly, made us even repulsive. Now, if you think I'm overstating that case, next time we have a share time, I invite you to lay it all out for us in public, the deepest and darkest recesses of your heart. Are you ready to do that? I didn't think so. Nor am I. It would be too awful. Sin has made us unlovely. Deeply unlovely. So what's the upshot? When we're actually truly known, we're vulnerable because when we're known, we're exposed. We're exposed as unlovely sinners that actually deserve rejection. Not to be welcomed, not to be cared for, provided for, to be rejected. And this is where the glory of the gospel comes in. Because God knows us more deeply and completely than any other person. He knows us more deeply and completely than we know ourselves. Hebrews 4.13 There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We are exposed to his gaze. And we cannot hide We can hide nothing. Not one of those deep, dark corners is hidden from his sight. Right? We tried that in the garden. Right? We knew we were naked, so we hid from him. It didn't work. It didn't work. It's not going to work for you now. Do not imagine that you can hide from God those parts of yourself that you are able to hide from other people. You can't do it. He knows it all. And yet, what was his response to our unloveliness? What was his response to our shameful, ugly sin? It was a response of love. God loves sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. See, God sent his one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a Redeemer for us. And when Jesus walked among us, he looked on us and he knew us through and through. He exposed our sin and our neediness. What did the Samaritan woman say? She says to her friends, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did, right? He says to her, go call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you speak rightly that you don't have a husband. The reality is you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. He knows us. He knows us. Nathaniel says, wait a minute, how do you know me? And Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. Now that kind of knowledge is scary. It's uncomfortable. We don't like to be that vulnerable. What does Peter say? After the first great catch of fish, he falls down at Jesus' feet and he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. See, Jesus' intimate knowledge of us exposes us for who we really are. But what does he do then? He doesn't cast us out. He does not depart from us. He loves sinners and sets out to give them rest. 
Here's what it says in John 13.1. Now before the Passover, so the day before he dies, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loves his own to the end. And how did he do that? He was the lovely one. He was the lovely one, but he went to the cross willingly and he takes on all of the filthiness and all of the darkness and all of the shameful things and all of the wickedness of his beloved. And he becomes the unlovely thing exposed upon the cross. And the Father spurns him and rejects him, and casts him out as the unlovely thing that we are. He casts out his lovely son because he was made unlovely for us. And that rejection was more excruciatingly painful for Jesus than anyone will ever or cannot, can ever know. How, what do we sing? How great the pain of searing loss the Father turns his face away. But Jesus, our Redeemer, did it because he loves us. He did it that he might make us lovely. He did it that we might be accepted and welcomed by the Father. So if you're still in your sins today, if you go to him, if you will lay yourself down at his feet and allow him to lay you bare and cry out to him, if you cry out to him, spread the corner of your garment over me for you are my redeemer. How will the Lord Jesus respond to that? Will he reject you? No, he never will. He never will. He will love you. He will take you to be his own beloved. He will cover you. He will cover you with his wings. He will cover you with his robe of righteousness. And then you will be completely and utterly known and completely and utterly accepted. Completely known. Completely accepted. So seek refuge under the Redeemer's wings today. There is no other refuge. There is no other place of safety. Other than that, you, you stand as an unlovely thing in the sight of God and he will cast you out. But not if you come under the covering, under the refuge of the, the wings of the Lord Jesus. Remember his promise. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Ask. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks, receives. And to him who seeks, he finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So you can go to Jesus, despite everything in your background, despite everything you've ever done. He knows it all. You can go to him and ask in hope for his covering of his righteousness. See, Jesus has never turned any sinner away, no matter how vile, who came to him in repentance and faith. And he never will. He never will. Mr. Spurgeon once said, 
There is not a sinner now living who can bear testimony that he has come to Christ and Christ has cast him out. There is not a soul in hell that can say, I came to Jesus and he cast me out. Nor shall there ever live in the universe one soul, however guilty and defiled, that shall be able truthfully to say, I came to him, but he shut up his heart of compassion against me and cast me out. It will never be said. It will never be spoken because it will never be. Jesus will not cast out the one who comes to him. He promises. Now, my brothers and sisters, I would speak two words to you. First, rejoice in this love. Rejoice in the love of your Redeemer for you. You are known and you are loved. So his love is for you. It's personal, right? He loves his sheep and knows them by name. He doesn't just love you as generic sinner. You're like sinner number 570,643. That's you. 5,634. No. His love for you is personal. The Father gave you to him that he might redeem you. He knows and loves you. His love is costly because he's given you himself everything that he is. And you can be sure that he will continue to do whatever it is that you need him to do so that your final rest and your final salvation is secure. It's accepting love. So there's nothing in your past, there's nothing in your present or in your future that he does not know. And nothing that he knows about you keeps him from delighting in you. He's not repulsed when you sin. What does he do? Again and again, he covers you. And he will never cast you out. And his love is transformative. See, he does not leave us in our sin. Right? He knows our sin. He accepts us in our sin. But he does not leave us in our sin. He doesn't allow us to continue in it. But he is so committed to loving us that he purifies us and purges us and transforms us and makes war against our sin because he loves us. So he gives us his name. He gives us his righteousness. And then over the course of years, he labors in us by his Spirit, so that we actually display the righteousness that he's given us. So that's, that's wonderful. Brothers, sisters, be meditating on the love of Jesus for you. And then also, then when we, when we know this kind of love that accepts us and transforms us and knows us, then we're able to give that love away also to others. So reflect his love. You've received his grace. Be conduits of his grace. Subcontractors of his grace to others as Boaz was. See, what 1 John 3.16, By this we know love. How do we know love? This we know love. He laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay our lives down also for the brothers. Right? Our receiving of his love leads us to a response of love for one another. See, Boaz was eager to be the means of God's blessing to us. He was ready. He was ready. Stood ready on the balls of his feet. Do we share that kind of eagerness to be the instruments of God's grace in one another's lives? Is that your MO? 
eager to be God's blessing to others. Think about it maybe in a couple ways. What about in meeting the needs of the saints? Are you eager? Titus 3.14 says, Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Is that what you're striving for? To devote yourself to good works so that you can be God's blessing in other people's lives? What about in reaching out with the gospel to sinners that they might find grace as we have found grace? Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. We are the ones that declare the gospel to unbelievers and through us he speaks. Finally, what about in helping one another with our sins? Loving one another with the costly and accepting love of Jesus. Are we ready? Do we stand ready to help one another with sin? To help one another bear our burdens? See, I've known what it's been like to unburden my soul to a brother in Christ and confess sin that's come from the darkest recesses of my heart. And it's scary. But when I've done this, I thank God, to a man, they've responded with love and acceptance of me. They've loved me despite my sin. They haven't accepted my sin, but they've loved me by helping me repent of it, helping me forsake it, all the while accepting me as God accepts me as a work in progress just like Jesus does. That kind of love is very precious. May it be much in evidence in our congregation, the love that helps one another in our fight against sin, while at the same time producing an extreme acceptance as we go along the journey. All right, so let us rejoice in the love of Jesus for his beloved, and let's reflect it also in our love for one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that that you did not spare your own son, but freely delivered him up for us all. We thank you that in love you sent him. In love he willingly came. In love he willingly went to the cross. That we, the unlovely, might become your beloved. And so, Father, we thank you and praise you for that. Let us live in accordance with it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.